Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. My guest today is an award-winning journalist and writer, Matty Khan. She's written one of the buzziest books of the season called Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. This book highlights the gutsy girls and the women whose voices and courageous actions have helped shape American society for the better. Now, Maddie herself has made a career of championing women's voices. She was the culture director at Glamour, where she specialized in women's issues. She's covered news and politics at Elle, and her journalism has appeared in Harper's Bazaar, The New York Times, Vanity Fair, you name it. Now, after listening to this conversation, I think you'll be in awe of Maddie's passion, but you'll also get a sense that she too is just like one of these incredibly restless, interested, curious women that she writes about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. The title of this book might not be exactly what it seems from the beginning. And I have to tell you that I actually auditioned for The Young and the Restless. Wow. In the presence <laughs> of a star right here. Yeah. I didn't get the part. So I have Maddie Khan here. How did your trajectory to being a writer begin? It, my hunch is that you were a you know, voracious student. Yeah, I was a definitely an overachieving student. And I think actually it's one of the reasons why, to our point before about feeling like some battles are over, that even as someone who was pretty attuned in high school to climate change and other social issues, I actually really thought very little about feminism. I felt really, really beloved in my classes. I felt like my teachers really took me seriously. I got to college and I felt like that, that my professors were invested in what I thought. And I felt like, great, we're done. You know, I never felt in in growing up, maybe there were subtle things that I wasn't attuned to, but I never felt like anyone ever discounted me because I was a woman. 
And so that was a great way to grow up, but it made for the working world to be a bit of a rude awakening. When I got out of that great academic environment and discovered like, oh no, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. I did start writing pretty young. I wrote in college. I used to do this thing because I would freelance pitch stories. Shout out to my first boss, Leia Chernikov, who let me do that when I was literally 19 or 20 years old. I didn't want to tell people I was a student and also writing. So I would say I split my time between New York and Boston. I was fully enrolled in class in Boston. And I said, I I split my time. I don't even know how I learned that phrase. It's so ridiculous. I feel like people often say, you know, they split their time between New York and LA. Yeah. Or like New York and London or something, but like who is splitting their time between New York and Boston. But thank you to all the editors who decided to look past that and let me write stories for them anyway. And then I graduated kind of into the environment of what would become the 2016 election. I graduated in 2015 and Hillary Clinton declared you know, one month before I graduated and I was in touch with and had been writing for Leia at L.com. And she said, why don't you come and cover the race? It's going to be historic. We're going to elect our first woman president. Famous last words. Not Leia's fault. We all thought that. And I did. I went to work there. I covered the primaries. I covered the conventions. I I got a crash course in a very particular kind of reporting, writing at a women's media organization while also being invested in the world of politics. And I wrote about politics for a while, and then I wanted to write about some other things. And then I started writing more about social issues. My parents, though, I do... I am extremely close to them. I live 10 blocks away from them. And I did feel, I mean, the book is dedicated to them. I did feel extremely lucky to have been raised by people who just thought you can do whatever the fuck you want. Are we allowed to curse on this podcast? Yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, they just told me you can do anything and they made me believe it. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but mostly for better. Now, there are kind of several ways into this book and you mentioned first being at L and following a congresswoman around, and I want to hear that story, but also of coming across a young activist who also inspired these stories. Can you tell us about both paths to writing this book? Yeah. In some ways, this book feels so inevitable. I only say that it feels that way and isn't that way because having known all the work that went into it, nothing about it felt inevitable. But it's true that when I was working at magazines at Elle and then at Glamour, I did feel sort of surrounded by these threads of these stories about teenage girls. And as I write in the introduction to the book, when I was at Elle, I was profiling former Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, who was in the process of her decades-long crusade to raise money for a women's history museum on the National Mall, which doesn't exist and still to this day doesn't exist, although she's getting closer. And she, like all good politicians, kind of had her her stump speech about why we needed this museum, and she would name examples of the kinds of stories she wanted to tell in a museum like this that would immortalize women's history in America. And one of the ones she always came back to was of a teenage girl named Sybil Luddington, and as Congresswoman Maloney would say, she rode farther and faster than Paul Revere. The idea for those who need to brush up on their American revolutionary history is that Paul Revere had ridden on his horse to warn the American you know, colonial troops of the incoming British armies, and Sybil Luddington was the daughter of someone who 
ran another colonial militia, and she too had ridden to warn him the British were coming. And Carolyn Maloney would say, you know, why do we know Paul Revere's name? Everyone knows him, but we don't know Sybil Ludington. So I had that kind of in the back of my mind. And then over the course of many years of working in magazines, I came in contact with many amazing young women who were working in the world of activism, from Greta Thunberg, who I think you're probably thinking of, who I profiled for Glamour, to the Parkland teenagers, who I spoke to also at Glamour. And a few of them, particularly around the issue of climate change, alerted me to this dynamic that I guess I had known subconsciously but hadn't really thought of, which is an overwhelming number of the people who we think of as young, prominent teenage activists now are girls. And in terms of who has a presence in these movements, not just in the US, but around the world, from Iran to Sweden, to what's happening in Europe, to Africa, to you know across every continent, girls are really at the fore of so many of these movements. And I asked one of the activists that I interviewed for a story about climate change and climate protest why she thought that was, and she basically said, I think girls are raised to collaborate, to kind of hold back, do less, consume less, make themselves smaller, be good communicators, do everything that it takes to do to complete a successful school group project, and that has made them very capable in the world of organizing. So when I started to think about the idea that would become this book, those two stories were kind of rattling in my head. First, this unsung girl who was reputed to have done something incredible that has kind of fallen out of the history books. And then sort of this idea that almost felt like a question. Is it true that girls are, because of how they are socialized and how we raise them, naturally, uniquely well-suited to the work of activism? I mean, your book starts in the 1800s and moves to the present. I mean, obviously, so much has changed in terms of how women's lives are lived from then to now. But is restlessness the theme in there? I think that one of the things that I found and the reason I started in the 1800s is because First of all, I wanted to resist to some degree the emphasis only on single extraordinary girls. So I tried really hard in writing about these stories to write also about the movements that these girls were working toward. I think what I found is, yes, restlessness, a dissatisfaction with the status quo is first of all, sort of part of adolescence and something that I think girls know how to marshal for a greater cause very, very well. And also I think what I found and, and why I started where I did and ended where I did is in places where girls gather, that restlessness will find expression in collective action. And I felt that was true in the 1800s with the labor movement. I felt that was true as girls organized to join parades for the suffrage movement, certainly and, and most poignantly in the fight for civil rights. And today, I think where girls have an opportunity to connect, you will often find them in between all kinds of other conversation you will find them talking about what they want to change. And that has led to a lot of progress for certainly the U.S. and I think underappreciated progress, which is what I wanted to kind of show. Well, I love the first example particularly, maybe because also it's so visually arresting, the ladies of Lowell, Massachusetts. Can you tell us more about them? But also it made me nostalgic for my all-girls school experience and just this idea that for many of these girls, which you will tell us about kind of coming to the textile mills, for some of them, 
that was an escape from the domesticity and the, a lot of that work that was tireless for certain young women, but also, also it was this opportunity to be with other girls and an opportunity for education. Which yeah. So it, all that is to say like that environment was something I had always thought of as like Charles Dickens, they're all in the soot. <laughs> Yes. But for in this case, for a period, it was quite an empowering move. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The Dickensian model was exactly what the person who came up with the Lowell Mill project wanted to avoid. He had seen that. Francis Cabot Lowell had gone to England, seen children, very young children, working in factories, losing limbs, dying, suffering horrible injuries. And he wanted to open textile mills because, frankly, it was really lucrative work, but he couldn't figure out who his workforce was going to be. And he decided cannily, I think, to think of what population in New England was sort of most untapped. And what he came to decide was that there was sort of this period where girls had very little to do because they were living mostly on single family farms. There was no higher education at that point, not widespread. The first women's colleges, seminaries were starting to open. A lot of these girls would get married, but most of them were poor and would like the opportunity to make some more money for themselves and for their families. And so he thought, great, we'll take these girls who aren't doing much of anything and we will put them in these factories to work. I don't think that it's because he was some great, generous thinker that he realized if he was going to convince men to send their daughters to his factories, he was going to have to sweeten the deal somehow. And what ended up happening, like you said, for a kind of a short period of time was that the factories became a place where there was work done and a ton of profit generated for these men, but also where it was kind of like an internship slash apprenticeship slash boarding school where girls would go to lectures at night, have access to libraries in a way that they never would on their farms and be with each other. And actually when I started the book and I realized it wasn't going to just be a story of the present, I thought I would start in the mid 1900s when the idea of adolescence came into the popular consciousness. I mean, there is no teenager in the 1800s. There is no adolescent, literally. The, the term is coined in the early, early 1900s. So I almost felt fraudulent writing about this, about these girls organizing in a time where they almost wouldn't have been recognized as a class. But what I saw when I read about them, and I find reading about them totally addictive, is that they actually did come to see themselves as a class, partially because they were living together, studying together, reading together, laughing, playing, working, earning money in a way that was totally unprecedented. And one of the reasons I wanted to start there is because it felt to me like what you're saying, like this first recognition among American girls that there is something unique about being us and that we have this power when we're together and we're not just in our families, when we're independent and earning money and deciding tellingly, I think, how to spend it. The diaries and, and the writings that are left behind from this period are full of girls talking about the scarves that they go by or their new boots or where they're getting silk stockings or all these other things that I think help feed this awareness that there is a great big world out there and that they should be playing a part in shaping it. And I read that in your book, that it was the first magazine that was run by women that was started there. And I just, something about that, you know, having yes, worked in women's magazines us. and knowing what kind of 
energized environments they are, you know, for better or worse. Totally. That there's such an aliveness that happens within that group when you're trying to think of what's relevant to the the women you want to serve. And so imagining those young girls together putting out their first magazine was the chemistry happening. Yeah, there's a real crackling. I totally agree. And obviously we both have the bias of having sat in those rooms and sat through those meetings and decided what goes in and what doesn't go in. But yes, it is, I mean, I do think it's a radical thing. There's in the prospectus for the magazine, when the girls start this project of what's called the Lowell Offering, they kind of decide, well, we need to raise subscriber money and we want to have readers. We need to justify why we're doing this. And they write this amazing thing about how other countries are older than a America and they have pyramids and they have treasures and they have all these things to offer. And they say that, you know, in the future, people will look to Lowell and the girls who are working there and say, these are our jewels. And I just thought this idea that they look at themselves that way and they say that this place where they're gathering and these ideas that they're exchanging, these are going to be the great American national treasures is like such a perfect First of all, I love the conceitedness of it. I think it's amazing. I wish more girls felt that way. And and I love the idea that they felt like they were building something uniquely American. And yeah, the writing that's in there is really funny. Some of it is very high-minded or making arguments. They make fun of each other. Somebody writes for the Lowell Offering and says like, well, I'm, I guess I'll be one of those mill girls who writes about how beautiful nature is and reciting kind of the topics that come up a lot as a way of making fun of the other girls who you know, this girl feels keeps repeating the same ideas. There is something really collegial, like a little workplace about it. And of course, this is a time where these are not girls who are anticipating having a career. So this is their, their kind of their one chance. You know, I think we can talk so passionately about these girls and about so many of the women in the book, but the protests that these girls led didn't in fact work. Right. And a lot of the protests in the book didn't. But that awareness that starts growing and brewing in the 1800s is obviously part of what's led us to today. Yeah. What became of some of those women and what do you think that led to? Yeah, the humbling and great thing about learning history is how, you know, you squint a little bit and something that looks like a big failure starts to seem more like a success and something that seems like a big success, unfortunately, sometimes later looks like a real failure. So a few things. First of all, the girls who left behind the the largest record of their own writings, many of them did become published authors, which is pretty crazy given the time period that we're talking about. It's not like Barnes & Noble exists full of shelves of women's writing at the time, but a lot of them do become writers, journalists, teachers. A, a, a high number of those girls, an unexpectedly high number of those girls from that first wave of, of the textile mills, so not, not what happened later, do go on to seek recognition for themselves in some way or another. Poets, writers, yeah, journalists, nurses, all those kinds of things. I think the echo to me that feels even, just speaks more to this idea of how history echoes across time and how something that can feel like a real defeat can have a second life as a bit of a success is this thing that I came across totally by accident. I had moved way past the Lowell Mill Girls in my research and I was writing about second wave feminism, which comes up much later in the book. And I was reading about these conversation circles that women started having as a way to kind of voice their experiences and, and see the common ground that they shared as women. 
And I came across from the 70s a New York Times book review because in the 70s, two books anthologized the work of the Lowell Mill Girls, just collections of their writings. And the person reviewing that those two books put them in the context of what was happening in second wave feminism. So this is like, you know, almost a, over a century later that this that this is happening and this awareness is dawning on people. And the reviewer says, here we see among the Lowell writings the first inkling of a feminist voice, the first beginnings of an awareness of women's rights where previously this person says there had been only a void. And that idea that the girls felt they were fighting for better working conditions. And of course, they should have won that battle. And later you see the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, all kinds of other tragedies that could be prevented if they had gotten what they wanted. But maybe what they didn't realize was that what they were also doing was articulating a feminist future. Uh, they wouldn't have had the language for that at the time. But the fact that a century and a half later, feminists saw their writing as kind of the beginning of their movement gives me a lot of hope because I think that we see things now that feel like they're going to flame out or they're not working or, you know, you see the legislative defeat or the election doesn't go the way you want and it feels over. But I think one of the nice things about working across such a huge period of time for this book, which truly almost killed me, is that you can see how that's not true, how the things that feel over aren't really over and that later people will pick those things back up and, and it helps them get started. I mean, it's interesting when you think certain things are over, like Roe v. Wade is done, yes. right? Oh, that's you know? the dark side. And you think, okay, everyone can breathe. We've got the pill. You know, we've got contraception. We've got that. Tell me a little about, you know, writing that section about all these incredible women advocating for abortion rights in America way back in the 60s and 70s and then having your book go to print and having kind of our reality shift. Yeah. Well, my editor and I both cried while we were editing the chapters toward the end of the book, which we luckily had a chance to tweak right after the fall of Roe. I think that's the thing about our, our rights. They don't stay ours. They all need to be zealously guarded and, and reaffirmed and sometimes the forces accumulate on the other side to make to make these things need to be relitigated in a quite literal sense. Some of the girls who are featured in this book are long gone, and it's only in the post-civil rights, civil rights and post-civil rights era that I could speak to the actual activists whose stories are in this book, which means that I could speak to the women who founded Jane, the underground abortion service that started in Chicago and was started by students, including one in particular who was a teenager at the time, to give women access to abortion. At first, they used a doctor who did the service for them, totally underground, and then they taught themselves to do abortions themselves and charged women less and did the abortions having been self-taught in, in the art of reproductive rights. And I could ask some of these women, you know, what are you thinking now to have lived through that period once and then to see that kind of resurge? I think the people who are lifelong activists know this is always a possibility. It's only people like me <laughs> who feel like that's behind us. You know, we don't have to worry about that anymore. So I think a lot of activists aren't necessarily surprised. But I don't think it makes it easier to sit there in front of your Word document and change your triumphant ending of the success of one of these movements to something much more equivocal. The only thing that I can say is that after that chapter in the book, 
there continue to be more and more young women who see this as part of their fight. And I hate that this, we needed this to shake us out of our complacency, but it is true that we recognize now in a way that maybe we didn't before that these are not to be taken for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, it was really intense. I mean, um, I don't think anyone wants to be energized by something horrible happening. And yet there's no question that we're seeing now that it turns out people liked having that as a right and they don't enjoy seeing it be taken away. They're not liking these news stories about horrible things happening to women and to families and to people because of these, these laws. So I never feel totally hopeless or like we're going to lose this forever. I just find it heartbreaking having done this work and having been a writer for a long time and cared about these issues that you know the collateral damage of every minute that goes by where these kinds of things are still up in the air and undecided and doctors have to make these decisions. It's people's lives that hang in the balance. And so you don't want it to be the case that something that's really energizing for a movement is really horrible for people. Yeah, for so many people, just depending on the state line. Yeah, the zip code. Within. Yeah, for sure. And and how close they are to the border to another state and how much money they have in their bank account. I mean, these things, it, it's not like it was ever the case over the past few decades that Roe was a total bulwark and made it so that everyone had the same access to reproductive services. We always knew that. But the starkness now is unbelievable. And the physical agony that some people have to go through now is totally inhumane. And I think that girls recognize that. There are girls who are very aware, much more than I was when I was in high school, thinking I lived in some utopia, making decisions based on the reality of this patchwork set of laws that exists right now. Well, I want to go back now because something that I thought you addressed so well in the book and is something that we always have to remember is how so often the the equal rights movement for the women's vote came at the expense of women and men of color. Totally. Before we get stuck into the civil rights movement, I think it's so important to go back and go, okay, white women got the vote. Can you share some more of the dynamics in that? And then you mentioned a woman I really loved, Mabel, and how her story, you know, was used in a way. Totally. How white women have also used women of color for their, you know, their own ends and just where we have to acknowledge that along the way. Yeah. I, one of the things that I, reasons I really wanted to include Mabel's story, in addition to thinking she's an amazing person and character for the book, is that I think that's a chapter that really ends with no tidy conclusions. The story of Mabel in particular is the story of a Chinese immigrant, daughter of a Chinese minister who was able to come to this country in a time of truly draconian anti-Chinese immigration law that was extraordinarily discriminatory and lasted probably way longer than most people think. But her parents were immigrants. She was an immigrant born in China, and she was by all accounts a total genius, just amazing at school, incredibly charismatic. There's this line that I love when she starts giving speeches because she's very political and very attuned too to the political dynamics in China that she's paying a lot of attention to, possibly under the assumption that at some point she'll go back and want to be involved in kind of culture building and politics at home. Someone says that they hear her talk and, and they notice that the audience is left mabelized by her talks, that she's so arresting, so charismatic, so precocious. People just hang on her every word. 
Now, part of that, and it's impossible to say that it's not part of that, is that she looks different than anybody, anybody in New York has basically ever seen. The Chinese community is still pretty small, pretty concentrated. She's very involved with her fellow Chinese students. She graduates high school and goes to Barnard as one of very, very few Chinese girls there. And, and you have to know that on the one hand, she has this amazing platform and this opportunity to reach people that a lot of girls don't have. And on the other, she is being fetishized because she looks different than the large portion of the people who are coming to hear her talk. I think the uneasy thing about that chapter is without being able to ask her because she's not here anymore, how aware was she of that dynamic? How much did she decide, I'm going to use this to my advantage? And how much did she feel she had no other choice because what was the alternative? And so I think she did become a face of the suffrage movement, you know, sitting on horseback, marching up Fifth Avenue in one of the biggest parades for suffrage in New York in the early 1900s. And she was very outspoken. I mean, she told white women a lot. You're not doing your job. You're not advocating the way that you should. We should be asking for, you know, we should be demanding rather rights for all women all over the world of every ethnicity and every background. But she had very limited power, which I think is what all the girls in the book grapple with. Their main source of power is being able to speak and they can't control how they are seen or what people do with their testimony. I think one of the things that I could have done with the Mabel story is kind of stop after she becomes one of the first women, the first Chinese-American woman to earn a PhD in economics from Columbia, which is absolutely wild. She had to get a special visa waiver to be able to leave the country to do her research and come back because she didn't have, you know, she wasn't a citizen. She never was able to vote in American elections herself. And you could have just stopped it there and kind of let the trail peter out. But what happens to Mabel is that her father suffers tremendously in the Great Depression. He becomes sick. He dies fairly young. And even though she has tons of friends who encourage her to come back to China and be a woman's rights activist or maybe stay in America and be a woman's rights activist, she takes over her family's church in Chinatown, and she kind of fades from public view. And I included that because I felt like as a writer and as a woman, I wanted more for Mabel. I wanted her to take the world by storm and become famous and write books and do all these things. But I too felt I had to ask myself the question of why do I really want that? And am I replicating the same kind of harm and the same insistence on Mabel to perform that she experienced, must have experienced in her own life. And so I wanted to include that because we'll never know why she decided to take the course in her life that she did. But not all girls have to grow up to be women who keep performing for us. And I think that that's something we have to be really, really conscious of. And certainly the white women who were trying to get suffrage passed at all costs were all too happy to sacrifice other women and men in pursuit of what they wanted, which was the vote for themselves. So it does no one any favors to make it seem like it's all one big happy family of womanhood. There are complicated things going on under the surface. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was reading your book and I'm born in Australia and I was trying to remember my history classes of when did Australian women get the vote. Mm -hmm. And I looked it up and in Western Australia, they got the vote in 1894 mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until 1908 that all women did but in that same kind of breath indigenous australian men and women did not get the vote until 1962 yeah. which is breathtakingly 
sad and despicable. Well, as I was thinking about that and then reading the next chapters about the civil rights movement and just, you know, grappling with how recent this history is. Sometimes I read the dates and I was like, you mean 19? Yeah. 60 something? I know, our very, very young democracy in America only dates back to the 60s if you really think about it. My goodness. And beautifully in the book, you talk about these girls that stay seated on the buses, you know, but also how the movement chooses people to represent and how Rosa Parks was the right person. Can you talk about the other, you know, incredibly courageous girls that came before her? Claudette Colvin, like you said, refused to give up her seat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, nine months before Rosa Parks did. So March 1955, relative to December 1955. And actually, I think over the past decade, people have done a better job. That name is a little bit more known to people, Claudette's name and her story. What I think people don't realize is two things about Claudette. First of all, she knew Rosa Parks really well. After she gets arrested um, and and is sent home and bailed out, although eventually found guilty and um, something that she finds extremely heartbreaking, Rosa Parks kind of takes Claudette under her wing. And Parks, I don't know that people really know this either, was heavily involved in youth organizing in Montgomery. She ran the NAACP Youth Council. When she was kind of wavering on whether or not she wanted to continue to be an activist, It was the idea of working with kids that made her decide she wanted to come back to do this work. So she's very, very invested in the next generation. I say this in the book, but just to illustrate the closeness between these women, they knew how the other one took their coffee. They were really close. Claudette slept over at Rosa Parks' house. But like you said, Claudette was not deemed the right face for the movement. There used to be this line, this thinking that it was because she got pregnant. She got pregnant in high school, but much later. So the decision was made before she had a baby or was visibly pregnant. Rosa Parks was older. She was really respected. She she had ties to the activist community. And obviously she too does get arrested. It's not like there's some plant. I mean, she does do the same thing and she does get arrested and that kicks off what becomes the Montgomery bus boycott. But Claudette's story also continues. She doesn't just stay cast aside. You know, she does get pregnant, which is really hard for her. She does see Rosa Parks become the face of this movement that she had kind of hoped to lead, which also is really hard for her. And then, lo and behold, it turns out they need her again because they want to bring a lawsuit against the bus companies to rule once and for all that you can't operate a segregated bus and they can't find a plaintiff. Now, of course, there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of black people who can attest to their mistreatment on buses in the South, but they can't find anyone who wants to do it because it's signing up for just horrible treatment, you know, abuse and harassment and possibly death, depending on where you live, threats to your family, certainly you're going to lose your job. I mean, these things are inevitable and they rack up. So the organizers try to find ministers, businessmen. They, first of all, they can't find one man. And in the end, they find four women. Two of them are teenage girls. One of them is Claudette. So after she's been through everything she's already been through, she decides, sure, I'll testify. She gives birth to a son. The day she testifies, she's worried about her breast milk leaking through the front of her dress. She is a teenager. She is still in high school. And she sits on the stand and submits to questioning. 
and they try to break her and they ask her, who's putting you up to this? The question that is always posed to teenage girls who are doing this kind of work. And she says, in essence, we're our own leader and I'm putting myself up to this. And they win the case. And when the Montgomery bus boycott ends, it is because the Supreme Court affirms the decision in Browder v. Gale. So I love Claudette's story. I obviously feel heartbroken because she did not have an easy life after that. And the process of being the face of something like this is not easy. Rosa Parks also did not have an easy life after the boycott. But I can't believe her tenacity that she kept doing it, that she was kind of told, you're not really the right one. And then when they needed someone again, she was ready to step forward. I mean, she's not in it for the glory. You're not getting like a lot of followers on Instagram. This is thankless movement work. And twice she felt she was ready to do it. These women are so inspiring. And I think, I mean, we need a book like this. This is the the American museum we need. I I did feel like one of the things I wanted to do was to show in lifting up these girls' voices and these stories how much of what we think of as just rote history is so selective in the telling. I mean, these are these really are the stories of American progress, and yet most of them are stories I did not know as a teenager. I got a great education. As I say in the book, the only two teenage girls I learned about in school were Sacagawea and Anne Frank. And, and we're missing out because this is like the richness of how this country got to be where it is. And I think the stories of their marginalization illuminate the fault lines in this country too. I always say, because I think people are like, who's a book for teenage girls really for? If you have ever watched a movie about a war or you've ever read a book about a war, you have been invested in the history of teenage boys. So you can give teenage girls a little bit of attention. Is there one contemporary young woman that you're very excited about? Maybe she's not in the book, maybe she is, but that you're watching and learning from? Yeah. I mean, two of the examples that come up really at the very end of the book to me represent two of the paths that I'm kind of really interested in. One is Olivia Juliana, who is well known to people who are active on social media because she is extremely active on social media and constantly raising money off the backs of embarrassing things that mostly Republican politicians do. She is so adept at using social media to her advantage as a tool for digital organizing behind the scenes. And she talks about this in the book. She's advising campaigns about how to talk to young women, young people in general, and helping them reach that very coveted demographic. As we know, young people are increasingly voting in elections and thank God for that. So getting those votes out are so, so important. And she is figuring out, you know, she's 20 now. She's just figuring out how to bridge that gap between being kind of this teenage marvel that people like to follow and being someone who's really respected when the doors are closed and she is explaining based on her wealth of knowledge why they should do X or Y. And I think she's navigating that transition which has bedeviled so many of the girls in this book really expertly. The other person who comes up at the end of the book, whose name is Cassie, is a state legislator in New Hampshire. She ran as a teenager, won her seat as a teenager, and now continues to legislate as an adult. She's not someone who's so famous, but she's someone who has influence. I mean, she is voting on the laws that are or are not getting passed in New Hampshire. And I think she had to recognize what she wanted from this kind of wonderkind campaign that she ran and won. And what it turned out she wanted was really to be a legislator, to be a politician. And she's not hoping to 
you know, get into a Twitter smackdown with anyone. She's hoping to be able to turn what was the interest of her as a personality into a career of public service. One thing she said to me, which is kind of the close of the book that I thought about a lot as I was finishing writing it was like, that's the amazing thing about getting your start as a young woman. You're just at the beginning. You can really do anything. And so I think those, I'm inspired by any young woman who's trying to make the world a better place now, but I really love to see young women figure that middle piece out, how they go from being someone who's precocious, who people like to take pictures of, to someone who figures out how to accumulate power, which is really important, and what to do with it. Ooh, I love that, how to accumulate power and what to do with it. Okay, last question, Maddie. What lights you up? Oh, (laughs) so many things. First of all, I am a New York City person by birth, and this city makes me feel both all of its kinetic energy, which I find very enlightening, and but also I feel a deep sense of calm when I'm here. I like to be around the other people in the city. I like to see every different kind of person, you know, everywhere from a show to a restaurant to the street to the subway. And I feel really motivated when I'm here. I'm just never going to be an L.A. person. And then I think the work of others. Um, one of the processes of this book was really to turn outward and take a, a, take a look at what other people were doing. And I find it really energizing to read about them and to see what they're up to and to see how I can amplify. That is like the fun work of being a writer is whatever I'm interested in. I can kind of shine a little light on. And then, of course, got to give a shout out to my favorite distraction from writing the book, which is every single program that airs on Bravo. (laughs) I have seen them all. I'm not proud, but I'm not not proud either. Thank you so much. And everyone, again, it's Young and Restless, the Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. Thank you, Maddie Khan, for coming on Lit Up. Thank you for having me. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radofsky. Until next time, bye everyone. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.